Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of Balloons2Drones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. We are joined today by our great editor-in-chief, Dr. Ross Mahoney. Ross, thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have you here. We thought we'd kick off the new year of 2023 with a look back at 2022 at some of the books we read and do a little bit of a retrospective best of. So today, the three of us are going to go around and talk about the best books that we read this year. Doesn't necessarily mean they were published this year, although most of them probably were. But these are books that really jumped out at us uh, this past year and want to recommend for, for you folks. And we'll also talk a little bit about some books that we'd like to see, things that we haven't read yet. Uh, in terms of books that haven't been written yet that might make for good projects or that we see are kind of gaps in the field, so to speak, uh, that maybe somebody out there can start researching. So who wants to go first? I'll go first and we'll go around the room each time. Mike, you might know the phrase from working in the museum. But when I used to work for the Royal Air Force Museum, um, we used to talk about our audiences in terms of having paddlers, swimmers and divers. So you move mm-hmm. from yeah, so the general audience through to divers, which would be those of us who occupy sort of the academic space. And sort of the book that I picked here, which is published towards the back end of 2021, sort of fits, I would say, the swimmer area. And it comes from, it's, it's a book by uh, an Australian historian and a, a reserve one-star air commodore here in, in the Royal Australian Air Force, a guy called Mark Lax. Mark has written extensively on the RAAF. Notably, he wrote a book about the um, F-111 in Australian service, which has just been updated. He's also just written the latest edition of the Australian Air Force's own official history. But the book in question is he, um, the Australian Air Force's History and Heritage Branch has launched a series called the Australian Air Campaign Series. And it's, it's kind of aimed at that sort of swimmer market. But Mark wrote a book on um, the Malayan emergency and Indonesian confrontation and the RWF's involvement in those campaigns. And it's, a, it's quite a fairly substantive book for what it is. It's a great introduction into the subject. Actually, not much out there in terms of uh, the air power, the historiography on the role of air power during those two operations or campaigns. The campaign is ostensibly led by the British. And one of the important points really in Mark's work is, you know, placing the RWF's operations and developments within that, I hasten to say, imperial context in the post-Second World War years, but kind of that it's still the RWF is still closely linked to the RAF. I mean, in the early 1950s, its chief is actually an RAF officer, a guy called Donald Hardman. So at the start of the Malayan emergency, you know, you still have this very close link. doesn't go down too well. John Slessor, who I'll come back to in a, in a moment for a different book, uh, recognises that it might not be the best idea to appoint, do that appointment. But it's a really good book. And it, but it, the series in general, I think, is really good. And I, I mean, there are any challenges, number of challenges in publishing sort of popular histories, if you, if you like, in terms of getting the right audiences. But I think the Air Force in, in doing this series have done a good job. Um, and this is the second one. We've actually reviewed the first one. So the first book looked at Operation Okra, the RAAF's commitment to the Middle East in recent years in comparison to its First World War operations. And there's a review on, of that on the website by Peter Layton. And they've published a few other books. They've published this year a book about the Australians in the Battle of the Atlantic in the Second World War. Got a book just coming out, which is a book about uh, First Nations aviators in, in the IWF, so the indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders populations. It's all, they're also republishing things. So they've just, re, in the same series, they've just republished uh, Air Vice Marshal Alan Reed's autobiography with some additions. He's in Vietnam, he flies the F-4. He's also involved in the F-111. So, I mean, in general, the, the series is a positive step forward in terms of the historiography of 
Australia's air power development. And it's a use, and we'll come back to this in a minute. Uh, in terms of it's a useful starting point for what might you do next? Where does this fit into you know development? So, so that that's the first one that I've sort of read, read this year. That I just yeah, it, it it's a good. It, it's important in that it, yeah, as I say, it places the Australian experience in its British context or its British imperial context, for lack of a better description. Um, but also highlights you know because about. I think it's a quarter to a third of the RWF during this period is deployed in Malaya and Indonesia and that sort of stuff. It's not just deployed in Australia. And of course, the follow-on to this is the the RWF deployment to to Vietnam as well. So it's a, it's a good book and, and well worth reading. And and we co- we complain about academic book pricing. These are well priced. They're, they're paperback here in Australia. They're about twenty Aussie dollars, so whatever that is in in US money about. About ten fifteen pounds in the UK. So you had me at F four. <laughs> so that sounds great, Brian. What's first on your list? So you know, we're also talked about swimmers and divers, and a book that jumped out at me this year, which I, I have a little bit of personal attachment to. Uh, but it's a book that kind of goes for both. I guess you would say. Uh, I, I think the academic would find it interesting, and I know that it's got a large public readership as well, and that's James Scott's Black Snow. And for all the discussion that was had over the last several years with Malcolm Gladwell's The Bomber Mafia, which I felt was kind of an appetizer to get some people interested, then James Scott's Black Snow is the main course and the dessert. It's a a very well-researched book. It, It looks deeply into American American bombing policy in Japan, which is not new. I mean, there's there's plenty of books on the subject. Uh, but one thing that I think that Scott does uniquely well is look at the the bombing from the Japanese perspective. So kind, kind of like Richard Overy's Bombers and the Bomb, uh, Scott also really dives into what it was like for those on the ground during the 1945 bombings of Tokyo. And there's no doubt it's harsh stuff, right? I mean, it's it's a difficult read. It makes me uncomfortable, uh, which is what I think a good history book should do. Now, I said that I got a little bit of personal attachment to that. I got kind of a sneak peek because Scott was one of my students at the Citadel in the master's program there. And, and I've got to commend a guy for going to learn more about, you know, historiography and, and the methodology that goes into writing a good history. But James Scott's Black Snow uh, leads my books this year for great air power histories. Yeah, fantastic. I haven't gotten to that one yet, but it's been on my stack for a little while now. So hopefully I'll get to dive into that one. The one that's on the top of my list is also a popular history. It's Wings of Gold, the story of the first women naval aviators by Beverly Weintraub. Uh, We interviewed her on the podcast a while back. And this book just really stuck with me as something I can recommend to a lot of people. You know, it's a popular history. It's very easy to read for people who are both you know, into aviation and academics, uh, but it's also just easy to read for anybody, uh, anybody in the general public that wants to read a, a good book about military aviation in this kind of mid Cold War period. Uh, I've been saying for years, you know, when grad students would come up to me and say like, oh, what's a good project that I can do for a dissertation or something like that? You know, it's a question we get a lot. I've always been saying you, there's not much about women aviators after World War II. You know, there's a lot of great books about that World War II era, you know, the WASP and and those kinds of programs. And the Women Astronaut Program has 
been written about extensively as well, but there's just not much about what are women air crews doing, you know, in the seventies and eighties and nineties. And this was not the first book to do that, but one of the books that really dived into that concept. And it's based extensively on interviews and, you know, written memoirs of, of these women. And so it has a very strong, like personal flavor. You get a lot of personal anecdotes and stories from their first person perspective, which is really, really interesting. And it gives you a, a really good kind of up close look at what these women were experiencing as they went into aviator roles for the first time, the challenges they faced, not only just learning to fly and becoming military pilots, but just kind of within the service uh, and from the public in terms of people that weren't really happy with them occupying those roles. And the message that comes across more than anything else is the airplane doesn't know the gender of the person that's flying it. If you're a good pilot, you're a good pilot. And uh, this story is all about these women that kind of prove that to be true through their efforts. So highly recommend this. It's Wings of Gold by uh, Beverly Weintraub. And now back to Australia. My next one, again, is a book published late 2021. Um, it's a book by an RAF officer, a guy called John Shields. John published his PhD thesis. It's called Air Power in the Falklands Conflict. And it's an operational, operational level assessment of air power during the Falklands Conflict. Of course, the Falklands War in, in British historiography often associated with the yomp across the island by the Marines and the Paras, but the Fire Brigade as well, and, and the Navy and the, and the losses the Navy incurred. But also, from an air power perspective, it's, it's heavily mythologized around the role of the Sea Harrier probably in no end helped by the fact that Commander Sharky Ward, who commanded uh, Sea Harrier Commander at the time, publishes essentially his account of the Falklands War, makes a, several interesting claims about not just Sea Harrier capability, but also RAF capability. Uh, suffice to say, he's not a friend of the Air Force. And one of his more interesting claims is that, you know, the RAF launch Operation Black Buck, the Vulcan raids against um, Stanley Airfield and so forth, launched six raids, several bombing raids, several radar attacks against radar, the radar installations and so forth. And here he argues that for the amount of effort put in by the Vulcans, the Sea Harriers could have done the same job because essentially the, the Vulcans, the way they're bombing, I think, memory certainly, I think, of the bombing raids, only one bomb actually hits. The runway takes it out, but it kind of misses the point. There's a degree of messaging going on with the use of, of, of the Vulcans over the Falklands. You, you have a nuclear-capable bomber making strikes. Well, what message does that send to them? But Sharky Ward make those again, and it's it's into the popular mythology. You know, it's one of those books that you know anyone talks about the air war over the Falklands. Oh, Sharky Ward! What John does. I think, is he provides a dispassionate and objective analysis of air power from both the British and the Argentine perspective, which is interesting as well. While he doesn't necessarily have access to all the sources he would have liked, limitation of a PhD, you know, travel, etc., etc., he still uses what sources he can to look at some of the Argentine issues. And he dispels from page one, he dispels some of the myths. For example, Sharky Ward claims to shoot down an Argentine pilot, but the Argentine pilot records say, well, actually, I wasn't shot down until the fourth mission, etc., etc. So it really does quite a good job of dispelling those myths. It's also really methodologically interesting. And I think this is, this is what you get with books that are academically based. He's essentially published his PhD. There's a methodology behind it. He's talking about centers of gravity and all those types of um, ideas. So he he provides a, a much fuller and open picture of the assessment, shorn, I think, of 
those mythologies, and also arguably, dare I say, some of the inter-service rivalries that exist between and have existed between the Royal Navy and the RAF. However, it does still identify gaps, and we'll come back to gaps, but you know, there's things like um, the operations by Nimrod, Nimrod R1 Signet aircraft, so 51 Squadron, um, and also the role of the camera PR9 from 39 Squadron, what they do, and you know, he doesn't deal with that, and he says, you know, those gaps still exist, because it it's problematic that uh, availability of sources is a relatively recent conflict. Um, there's just some issues around sources, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, it provides a really good look into the, the Falklands War. And actually, as a sidebar, it'd be really interesting to see. I know Rob Owen's new um, edited book with your series, Brian Restraining Airpower, has a chapter in it on the Falklands War by, by Rob and Steve Padgett. Um, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, they take, they'll take different perspectives, but I think the mark of a good book is if it gets cited and stuff like that. You know, have they made use of John's work? Because John's published elsewhere. He's written articles and so forth based on on the PhD. So, yeah, it, it's a good – and it's good to see. We, see. we see quite a lot about Desert Storm and stuff like that, but we don't really see much about the Falklands. There are a few good pieces, but this is a really good piece of work that I think puts us in good stead for really trying to understand that conflict born of some of the mythologies that have, have built up. And there are mythologies on both sides. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good book to look at. Back to you, Brian. You know, much like Monty Python said, now for something completely different. And my second book of the year would be Jeffrey Bowman's A Long Voyage to the Moon. Uh, and it is a biography of astronaut Ronald Evans out of the Nebraska Press's Outward Odyssey series, which I have enjoyed immensely. Not only because all of the books essentially have the same cover and they they look good on a bookshelf, uh, but because they do a lot of good work. This is supposed to be a people's history of spaceflight. So it is not academic in the way that that we traditionally view it. You know, there's there's no footnotes, there's no endnotes, which can be a little bit annoying to the uh, to the reader who is who's looking to find out where these these quotes come from but this is a relatively minor critique of a great series and one of the things that the series does uniquely well is it brings out these stories that we are not let's say as familiar with and so you know there was no biography on Ronald Evans and for those that don't know Ronald Evans was on the last Apollo mission which flew 50 years ago this month. And so Ronald Evans was the last command module pilot, last man to orbit the moon alone, uh, last person to do a deep space EVA. And so he has all of these, all of these unique aspects to his career in NASA, but he's also one of the few Apollo astronauts who also served in Vietnam and flew combat missions in Vietnam. So many of these guys get picked up in the early 60s to the mid 60s, and, and Evans came in one of the later classes. Uh, which meant that he did have time to fly combat missions in Vietnam. And you read about a lot of the early astronauts who kind of feel like they missed out on that, that they weren't doing service to their nation. Even though they were part of this this great Cold War struggle of racing to the moon, they still felt like they missed out on Vietnam. But Evans did not. Evans was there. He flew combat missions with the Navy. Uh, He was a naval aviator. And so this is one of these, I feel like one of these great gaps in the historiography of the Apollo program is kind of these unsung heroes or, you know, these guys who did not get as much attention as, you know, Armstrong, Aldrin, uh, Alan Shepard. And this is also because, 
you know, Evans doesn't live long enough to write his own biography, right? Uh, all of these books that come out in the, the 2000s and the 2010s, Evans wasn't around for this. So I, I really have to commend uh, the University of Nebraska Press. I really have to commend Jeffrey Bowman. Uh, a Long Voyage to the Moon, The Unconventional Life of Astronaut Ronald Evans. That's fantastic. That's so true. You know, that that idea of people feeling like they missed out on combat by going to space and the interesting relationship that the space program has with the military is, is such a fascinating one that comes up again and again in these books. Um, well, if you're talking a lot about very personal story, my next pick is a very technical story. Uh, it's a book that just came out actually a couple of weeks ago, and I was lucky enough to get an early peek at it. It's called Tomcats and Eagles, The Development of the F-14 and F-15 in the Cold War by Tal Tovey. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is a really interesting book. It's it's ostensibly about the development of the F-14 and F-15, right? The Tomcat and the Eagle, two of my favorite airplanes, great fighters. But it's it's not just a tech-focused kind of thing, although it does have that aspect. Uh, it's really more about why did the United States want to make planes like this at that particular time? And so he's kind of telling the story of airplane design and development in the context of what's going on in the Cold War uh, how is the U.S. military leadership thinking about what their job is in the Cold War and what they want to do and, and why that's shifting kind of post-Vietnam? So he talks a lot about the Vietnam experience. Uh, also talks a lot about the Israeli experience in this book, which is a gap that um, is really nice. Uh, there's not, I don't think, enough written about the kind of Israeli use of air power in this kind of middle Cold War period. There, there's a few books about it, but it's always nice to hear more perspective about that. So. Uh, the way that Tovey is able to connect all of those threads about American experience in Vietnam, the Israeli experience in those same kind of time period, and how that's all influencing the design of these aircraft and what the, the Air Force and Navy's vision is for using these aircraft in terms of, again, fighting against the Soviets, potentially. It's really, really interesting. And it's it's something that his book is a really good complement to my own, which talks about the F-15 development. You know, Flying Camelot gets into that quite a bit. But this is kind of a different spin or a different interpretive lens on that. So it worked really well together. For, for a topic that I thought I knew a whole lot about, this book gave me kind of a different perspective that I really appreciated. Uh, so I would highly recommend that. And it just came out a few weeks ago from Navy Institute Press. Ross, what else do you have for us? And the next one for me, going on from Brian's, is, is another biography. It's a biography of Marshal of the Royal Air Force, John Slessor. Slessor, arguably the air power, if the RAF produce an air power theorist in the interwar period, it's him. Though I lean more to the interpretation that there's an RAF school of thought with regards to, the, to air power employment, but he becomes famous because he publishes a book called Air Power and Armies in, with Oxford University Press in the mid-1930s. He then goes on to senior command during the Second World War uh, and eventually becomes the chief of the air staff, becomes the professional head of the Royal Air Force at about the time of the Korean War. And he's quite important in several strategy papers that the British developed in the early 1950s that refocused Britain's strategic focus at the time in light of the Korean War, in light of the escalation going on in the Cold War at the time. He then retires and he becomes essentially kind of transforms into a strategic studies specialist. He's still air power focused, but he deals with issues to do with nuclear weapons and so forth. He's really, really important. He himself obviously writes a lot. He writes his own 
autobiography, The Central Blue, and then a series of a published a book called These Remains, which is an anthology of his works. And he's already been treated to one biography by the late Vincent Orange, who's quite well known for producing biographies of RAFM and uh, senior RAF airmen, starting with Keith Park and uh, working his way through people like Cunningham, Tedder, and so forth, and then eventually Slesser and so forth. Um, but this book's produced by uh, a gentleman called Bill Pike, uh, and Bill did the MA in air power that used to run at the University of Birmingham, so my alma mater for my PhD. And the thing about Bill's work is it's a bit more of a positive view of Slesser than Orange. I always view some of Orange's work as being viewed through the lens of Keith Park. And so he wrote his Park biography and then, and you can kind of see his affinity for Park through that. And Slesser and Park, they write and they correspond for a long time, but there are issues. Park is retired from the Air Force when Slesser is essentially the head of personnel for the RAF, so Air Member for Personnel. But the other thing about Bill Pike is you can ask the question, well, why do we need two biographies of him? Well, Pike had access to material still in the uh, family collection. So he offers a more nuanced view of Slesser and therefore it, in my opinion, better than Orange's biography of Slesser. And Pike's also done some articles on Slesser's work in the 1950s. His MA dissertation when he was at Birmingham was on Slesser in, in that period. And it offers some more nuanced views of Slesser's role in I think that's, it's really good. It's, it's interesting to beg the question, did we need another biography? And I think the Pike biography gives an affirmative yes to that. Yeah, here is a better analysis of someone who is really, really important, not just to the RAF's history, but also the development of air power in general. Air power and armies is widely cited by people. It was republished in the late 2000s, I want to say, by University of Alabama Press. They went through a period of republishing key air power works including Douay, they republished it. And it's got a, I think, Phil Mylinger to the forward to it because Mylinger's done some stuff on Slessie, wrote an article on it, which appears in his edited book, Air War. So, you know, he's a really important person to Air Power. So it was great to see a new biography that provided a, yeah, arguably a slightly more balanced view of the man. You know, it's, it's what's not, it doesn't hold back per se, but it, it's a much more balanced view of someone who is significant to as say, not just the development of the RAF, but air power in general. And of course, in the context of the Second World War, coalition air power. That was another one that was really good to see come to light. All right. So I guess it is back over to me for uh, book number three. Uh, and my, my third book is an autobiography, which can be a bit of a challenge in writing about yourself. But this this particular individual has done a great job in this book raises or exposes, I guess you might say, a lot of what is missing in the air power historiography. So the book is called Black Horse, and it is a biography of General Larry O. Spencer, who we also did a, a podcast with. Larry Spencer went from being enlisted in the Air Force in the 1970s to being the vice chief of staff of the United States Air Force in the 2000s. Uh, and so it talks about his roots growing up in Washington, D.C. It talks about his perspective on being a person of color in a, a racially strife-riven Air Force. It talks about his rise, not only to the vice chief of staff, but to, to the general officer ranks, not as a pilot, but as a finance officer. So for me, this book hit so many notes on, on what is missing in air power historiography 
right now. You know, several years ago, my wife was in my office and she asked me how many of the books on my shelf were by someone who was a person of color, how many books on my shelf were by someone who was a different gender than myself. Uh, And I had to take a real hard look at the type of books that I was reading. And so for me, Uh, Spencer's book was a fascinating account of his time in the United States Air Force from a perspective uh, that was really different than my own. I mean, this was a period, the 1970s, 80s, 90s, that I was intimately familiar with, or at least I thought I was intimately familiar with. But this book brought out an entirely new perspective and raised new questions for me. And again, at times was a difficult book to read. And so this is out of the Naval Institute Press who has done uh, remarkably great work in their own history of aviation series and other air power works and naval aviation, quite obviously, they are the the only game in town when it comes to that. But this this biography of, of General Spencer was was fascinating and difficult and highly recommended. I agree completely, Brian. That was certainly uh, almost made my list as well. It was a really good read. And as someone who reads a lot of memoirs, that one really stands out as being different and worth the time. My next pick is also a memoir that is probably going to be a controversial pick. It's not exactly about air power specifically, but I think a lot of air power enthusiast folks will find this book interesting. Uh, So if I were to ask you what the most hated person is in U.S. aviation history, I feel like a lot of people would probably say Bob McNamara, right? He's he's a guy who gets a lot of negative attention, understandably so. Mike, not to interrupt you, but when you said that, I had like a laundry list that came to mind. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, I won't say what I was going to say. Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of names that come to mind, but uh, Bob McNamara is one that uh, shows up on a lot of people's lists. And uh, his son, Craig, just had a memoir come out. Again, it's not specifically about air power, but it provides such an interesting perspective on this, you know, fairly well-known figure uh, that I really think it's worth a look. It's called Because Our Fathers Lied, a memoir of truth and family from Vietnam to today by Craig McNamara. So what's really fascinating about this is you find out right off the bat that Bob McNamara's son was certainly against the Vietnam War. He was a Vietnam War protester and actually left home fairly early on Uh, and became a full-blown communist. I mean, the guy moved down to Chile and was supportive of the Allende regime and was a farmer down there and only later in life moved back to the States and and became a farmer here. Um, And his life is really interesting. I have a feeling most of our listeners will probably strongly disagree with with Craig McNamara's viewpoints on politics and things like that, which is fine. It's still an interesting book to read just to get his perspective on what was going on during the Vietnam years and how his father has been remembered and discussed. It's kind of interesting to hear someone talk about Robert McNamara from this completely different perspective than we're used to hearing. Someone who lived with him, who was in his home, who you know had Thanksgiving dinner with him, and who strongly disagreed with him, but in ways that maybe are different than we're used to hearing about. So I would highly recommend this one. It's called Because Our Fathers Lied. Yeah, we are kind of running low on time, but I want to go around the table real quick and just ask each of you, what are some areas that you really think are missing in the literature, Things, topics that you want to hear more about? Uh, from maybe some future books? Uh, Where do we start? Air Force culture. Let's start on the list. 
but yeah, Air Force culture is not really understood. Um, it tends to be the preserve of social scientists and as opposed to historians. There are a few good works I've published on the RAF's organizational culture. There's a PhD by an RAF one star by the name of Finn Monahan. Finn's wrote, wrote a very good PhD on, on the RAF's organizational culture. There are some works out there. Actually, another work I was going to mention is Jason True's The Icarus Solution, which was published this year by Air University Press, which essentially challenges Builders, the Icarus Syndrome, which is obviously the key work on it, US Air Force culture. But I think we still don't know much about the organizational culture of Air Forces and their organizational structures and why they operate and perform the way they do. You know, the implications of having squadrons as your main sort of tactical unit as opposed to battalions, which are much larger. Those sorts of issues still haven't really been looked at and considered. I think there's, you know, there's, there's still a lot of work to be done in that space. We tend to focus on air power. We tend to focus on operations and theories and the overarching emphasis of air power historiography tends to be the effectiveness of air power. And I think we need to dig a little bit deeper in that. And related to that is air power education, air force, education of air forces. I know Brian's series with Kentucky published some conference proceedings by Randy Wakelum. Randy's book is a very good starting point, an excellent starting point, but there's still much more to do. We don't really have histories of the key education stuff. I know, I know the, the US Air Force itself has published some stuff on things like ACTS, but sort of independent scholars looking at, you know, you know, no one has gone away and really written deeply, independent of the Air Force, if you like, outside of that construct about the ACTS. No one's really written a history of the RAF staff colleges. Most people wouldn't realise that actually in the post-Second World War period, there were two RAF staff colleges. There's lots of stuff to be done there. And also, you know, in terms of education, you know, moving away from the argument that, you know, these were doctrine development centres, which is tend to be how they're looked at. No, they're staff colleges. You know, they're education establishments. They exist for a specific reason. Doctrine is part of that, but it is part of it. So there are two key areas I would love to see more on. There are, of course, lots more. Yeah, so I would echo Ross. And what I would add to that is if there is something that you are, uh, if you are a young scholar looking for something to write about, and all you can find is chapters. So you can find a chapter in this book on your subject, or you can find a chapter in that book on your subject, but you can't find uh, an existing monograph or standalone book. That probably means that it's, that it's underrepresented uh, and it needs a, a closer look. So when you look at these edited volumes, uh, restraining air power, educating air forces, or some of you know the, the bios, air commanders, uh, things like that, and, and if all you can find on, on someone or something is a chapter, uh, that definitely means that there's, there's probably a worthwhile longer project there. Uh, as far as operations go, Mike, I know you and I have talked about this uh, a lot, and maybe one day we will get around to it. But if not us, uh, someone else definitely needs to jump in there. And a reassessment of the bombing campaigns in the Korean conflict, specifically the impact that that had on the North Korean people is something that is that is hugely underrepresented. Uh, most of the books on the Korean conflict tend to look at, you know, MiG Alley and F-86s versus MiG-15s, and there's a lot of goodness there. But, you know, the, the thing that jumps to me is Conrad Crane's American Air Power Strategy in Korea, 
or a few trails Korea book, but they you know, these, these are very dated books. And I think that there's a reassessment uh, that, that needs to be done with that particular conflict. Beyond that, uh, I, I think we definitely need more air power history through a different lens. So through people of color, through women, uh, I know that there are some young scholars working on gender histories of, of air power. So anything that we could get to force ourselves to look at aviation and air power history through a different lens, through a different perspective, uh, perhaps even through a different historical methodology are greatly needed. I completely agree with everything both of you guys uh, just said wholeheartedly. There's no shortage of topics that we need more scholarship on. But the one that jumped out at me the most uh, when thinking about this question was, I have so often wanted a good book about U.S. military humanitarian efforts and airlift capabilities and operations. And this is a huge field. I'm, I'm shocked that there's not much more about it. You know, Dan Hallman has a really good collection that kind of catalogs a lot of the major humanitarian airlift operations, but it, it's more of a list of, of what the operations are and kind of lists of facts about them. There's so much room to write about individual operations uh, in a given year or, or specific locations, or even kind of a larger overall narrative of humanitarian operations in a broad period. But it's something that the U.S. military does so much in terms of evacuating people that are in hazard areas, dropping food and supplies to people that are stranded, even things like helping save animal populations that can't access food after uh, some sort of natural disaster. They'll airdrop food to save horses and things like that. Uh, this is a core part of the Air Force's mission, and not just the Air Force, but all the U.S. military services have this as a core part of their mission, and they do it so often. You know, there's a case to be made that the U.S. military drops as much or more food and supplies as they do bombs. And so it's really important to look at what that effort is doing, uh, and there's a there's so many pieces associated with it. You could talk about culture of those operations as compared to combat culture. You could talk about the operations themselves. You could talk about the organizational aspect. You could talk about the international diplomacy aspect, the alliance building aspect. There's so many lenses that you could look at humanitarian airlift through. And it's something that uh, I'd really love to see a whole slew of books on in the next few years. Well, I think we are running out of time. Um, so, uh, Ross, where can we find more of you online these days? Uh, I'm still on Twitter at Air Power History. I'm also on Mastodon. You can find me on Mastodon. Uh, of course, from Blues to Drones, the website itself, and uh, that's, that's the main vehicle. That's where I am at the moment. Uh, so, at Brian Lastly on Twitter, uh, www.brianlastly.com, uh, and I will remain there to the, the bitter end. Well, I'm at mwhankins.com, and of course, all of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Thank you, everybody. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Uh, please send us an email or submit uh, an article to us for publication if you'd like to. You can find that at balloons2drones.com slash contact or balloons to drones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.